Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for uh, just the joy of Christmas. Thank you, Lord God, for the time that we have. And Lord, we just pray as we come together, we, we just want to quiet our hearts, our minds. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would speak to us and, and teach us and remind us, Lord God, of your word and your great love for us. And we ask for your blessing, Lord, as we give you our attention, our hearts, and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. It is still exciting. How many of you, do you guys still get excited about Christmas? Yeah? Good, good. Do you get as excited about it as you did when you were younger? Hopefully, right? It's, it's kind of sad when you lose excitement about Christmas, you know, when you get older, right? You got to shake yourself a little bit, right? If you're, if you're starting to lose excitement about Christmas, then you got, you got to step back, right? You, you, you got to get a little bit more excited. Um, how many of you are meeting with family? Yeah, okay, some of you are meeting for family. Uh, any of you hosting? How many of you brave souls volunteer to host your family's Christmas gathering? God bless you all, right? God bless you all. Uh, you know, a lot of people lose excitement about Christmas because, frankly, it's kind of stressful. A lot of busyness, a lot of things to do, and especially if you're hosting the Christmas party right? When, when people come into your house, they don't really think of the, the clean floors that they're walking on, right? And the clean bathrooms that they're using. They don't think about all the hard work of all the decorations that you put up to make your house look good. You watered your grass a little bit more, right, to make it look a little bit better or something. You didn't, they don't see, think about all the clean tables that they're eating off of or the clean dishes that they're de- eating off of. All they're thinking is they walk in their house and you're like, hey, all right, let's, let's, let, let's eat, let's do all these things. And they're just enjoying the work that you did. They don't even realize how much work you put in, huh? They don't realize maybe you got the kids to help you. Maybe, but they don't realize all the hard work that went into hosting that Christmas party. All they know is they come in and they can enjoy the night, right? And, and understandably so, you want them to, right? You as a host, you don't say, hey, are you having fun? Good. It was a lot of work to get my house in order, right? You don't necessarily say that, but that's the enjoyment about Christmas, is that you get to enjoy the things that take place. Well, today's passage, I don't know how much excitement you have towards Christmas, but today's passage now is not the most traditional or typical Christmas message or passage that you will look at. I would venture to guess no church is going to have this passage talked about next week or this week. Maybe that's, I I don't don't know, that's just speculation. But this passage we're going to look at in Mark does speak to why we celebrate Christmas the reason for the season, why we come together and celebrate Christmas. So we're going to pick up in Mark. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. And if you remember where we've been going over, Jesus had just entered Jerusalem, right? He entered Jerusalem He saw all around what was going on in the temple. And the next day, he curses this fig tree 
that it may never produce fruit again. He goes in the temple, and this is where we saw Jesus turn over the tables of the money changers. He drove out the people who was buying and selling the animals for the sacrifices. And then he made this, this uh, condemning statement about what was taking place, that this was most likely taking place in the courtyard of the Gentiles, the area of the temple grounds where the Gentiles were able to come on to worship God. And what they did is the religious leaders, they made this into a busy marketplace where it should be a, prayer, a house of prayer. It became a place of business. The next day, Jesus and the disciples were going to go back to the temple, and they saw the tree that Jesus had cursed, and it was indeed withered from the roots all the way through. And Jesus took the time to teach the disciples a lesson about faith and praying in faith and forgiveness. We saw that last week. So again, in this scene, Jesus is displaying. He's presenting this picture of the purpose of why he came to the earth. What was his mission? He's making this, he's creating this picture for us. Verse 27, this is where we'll pick up. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him. And began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? So here's the scene. Jesus again and the disciples, they come into the temple. And they're being confronted with the, 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 the usual suspects. The ones who, the, 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 those who are going to come to criticize and confront Jesus, his accusers. We have the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These represented the religious leaders' authority of the Jews and of Israel at the time. Right? They were like, they could represent the Sanhedrin. These were the representation of the religious authority in the day. And they go and they confront Jesus. And they confront him with these two questions. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now we've seen in Mark, a theme throughout Mark is Jesus' authority, right? Jesus' authority has been a theme we've seen throughout the book of Mark. We see that Jesus' authority in his teaching when he went into the synagogues and he started to teach, people realized he's teaching with an authority we've never heard of. We've never seen before. We've seen Jesus show that he had the authority to forgive sins. When the paralytic man was brought to him, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees were wondering, who, who gives him the right the authority to forgive sins. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. We've seen Jesus have his authority in casting out the evil spirits. He had authority over the demonic. And then we saw Jesus' authority over nature, over creation. He was able to walk on water. He silenced the wind and calmed the seas. Multiplied the bread and the fish. So Jesus, is, this is not the first time Jesus was questioned. His authority was questioned. We've seen it previously before. The Pharisees and religious leaders would approach him and they would ask him, what authority do you have to do these things? 
When Jesus turned over the tables, he just, just caused all that happen, drove out the people who were buying and selling. Who gave him the right to do that? Who told him he can do these things? I've asked before, throughout our time in Mark, right? When we're reading these passages, I've challenged you all, challenged us. When we read this, can we identify with somebody in this passage, right? Remember me doing that, right? When you're reading this and you're looking at the scene, can I identify, can I place myself in these person's shoes? And I would imagine when we read this part about the authorities, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders challenging Jesus, I imagine many people can identify with them, with the religious leaders in this moment. Because I think a lot of people resist believing in Christ, becoming a Christian, following Him, because many people have a hard time being told they're wrong. A lot of people have a hard time giving up what they desire, what they want. And I think many people would say, what gives you the right to tell me I'm wrong? Right? I'm sure many people say, what gives you the right to tell me I need to make changes. I need to be different. So I think a lot of people can relate to the Pharisees or the religious leaders in, these mom- in this time going to Jesus. Who gives you right to change my life? To tell me what I'm doing is wrong. A lot of people live that way. A lot of people see Christ that way, Christianity that way. They don't have a right. And they don't realize that they're going to be accountable to someone for the life they lived. And it's not going to be themselves. Imagine, how many of you just had finals? Any of you just had finals? Right? Can you imagine if you took a final and a teacher marked some answers wrong and you got your test back? And you say, what is this? Who gave you the right to tell me I'm wrong? I believe I am right. I believe I'm right. I feel this is the right answer. Who gave the authority to tell me I'm wrong? I dare you to do that to your teacher. Try it. Go up to him and say, I'm sorry, I think you made a mistake. I think you believe that I thought this was wrong. No, it's right. No, 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 no. You're wrong. No, you're wrong for thinking I'm wrong. Right? That's absurd. But in reality, people live that way. Who gives God the right to tell me I'm wrong? Who gives God the right to tell me that I need to change things up? What gives God the right to change my life? I'm happy how I'm living my life. So the, the, fair, the religious leaders go to Jesus. What gives you, the, what authority do you have to do these things? Who gave you the authority? Look what Jesus says. He, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. 
Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Jesus turns the tables on these, his accusers. And he turns the tables on them with a question of his own. If they answer his question, then he will tell them by what authority he does these things. If they can give him an answer, he will tell them by what authority. And his question was, was the baptism of John from God or from men? And notice what he does. He commands them, answer me. He says this twice. You answer me. And then he, ans- he says again, answer me. I love this. Again, they're not realizing Jesus is showing his authority in the moment. He's taking command of the situation. You want me to answer your questions? No, no, no. You answer my questions first. You answer me, right? And here's the situation. And they began reasoning among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the multitude, for all considered John to have been a prophet indeed. And answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Man, Jesus, he's smart, right? Jesus poses a dilemma for them. He knows their hearts. He knows their conditions, what they're thinking. They do not want to answer this question because if they say John the Baptist's message, you remember John the Baptist's message, right? It was a message of repentance. He pointed them out. He pointed out the religious leaders of the day and said, you hypocrites. If they say that message was from God, it implicates themselves. Because they knew they rejected it. So if they say it's from God, they're admitting their own guilt. They're judging themselves. But if they say it's from men, they realize, wait a second, the people see him as a prophet of God, a messenger of God. And if we say it's from men, we fear the reaction of the people They're going to be mad at us, right? Last week, you talked about the dangers of being friends with the world as opposed to being friends of God. This is the kind of dilemma we face when when we are so interested in being friends with people, friends with the world, that we are so concerned what they'll think of us if we try to do the right thing. That's why you can't be friends with the world and friends with God because at some point in time, there's going to be a rub. There's going to be a conflict. You're going to have to compromise. Do I do what's pleasing to God at the risk of upsetting the world, my, everything, everyone around me? Or do I compromise what's doing what is right and risk doing what's displeasing to God? See, many people fear being unpopular about doing what is right. And they would rather be wrong and good with the the, the masses of people than do what is right and be hated, right? 
So that's the same position that the, the religious leaders of the time feel. They're, they're, in the, they're in that place. If we say it's from men, people, they're, they're not going to like us. They're going to be upset at us. What do we do? So they say, we don't know. They don't admit their fault. So Jesus denies them a straight answer. However, Jesus does respond to them. and He responds to them in a parable with a stinging message. Look in chapter 12, verse 1. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others beating some and killing others. Let me stop there. So here's the parable what we have so far. Here's a man who planted a vineyard. And then he built everything needed for this vineyard to be fruitful to produce fruit. And so before he goes on a journey, he hires some workers, some tenant farmers to come and cultivate and work on his vineyard so it can be fruitful. And then he goes on his journey. So when it's time for, the, for it to be fruitful, time of harvest, he sends his servants, the slaves, to go and to collect some of the fruit from his vineyard. And so as he goes and he sends these workers to collect from his vineyard, the workers that he hired, one gets sent, they beat him and cast him out empty-handed. The owner, he sends another. They do the same but worse, beat him in the head, shame him, and send him away. So what does the owner do? He sends some more. But as he sends more, what happens? They kill, they beat, drive them away. Can you imagine? Imagine what your response would be in that scenario. Verse 6, he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. So here's the owner. He sent his servants. One after another gets beaten, eventually killed. And he thinks, surely, I will send my beloved son. Surely, certainly, they would respect my son. And what happens? In their minds, they say, let's get rid of him, and this whole thing will be ours. So the son is sent, the son is killed, and thrown out of the vineyard. Then Jesus ends the parable with this question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. 
Have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus concludes the parable that the owner would return and destroy the hired workers and give the vineyards to others. And he quotes Psalms 118, verse 22 to 23. We've seen this passage, if you remember, some messages ago when Jesus is entering Jerusalem. You can go back and listen to that message. But Jesus, here, he's making this statement. He is the cornerstone that would be rejected. Now, why does Jesus tell this parable? Why does he say this to the religious leaders? Now, we may read this, right? And we, maybe we can, if you're Christians and you've been, you, you, you know your Bible a little bit, you can see that, oh, I see that Jesus is connecting himself to the Son in the parable, right? The Father sends the Son, and the Son is killed, right? So you think, okay, well, we can see that Jesus is foreshadowing his death, his eventual sacrifice, his death. But what may not be so obvious to us will be obvious to the religious leaders of the day, if they know the scriptures, which I assume that they would, how Jesus starts this parable should be very convicting. Because Jesus starts this parable, it's not just, you know, he's starting some kind of uh, throwing this, this scene out of nowhere. It seems like Jesus is citing, is referring to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Now, in our time in Mark, right, Whenever Jesus refers to the Old Testament, right? We've seen many times he refers to the Old Testament. Oftentimes, he refers to them as a message to those religious leaders, right? And if we know about Isaiah, Isaiah's message, his prophetic message was one of judgment to unfaithful Israel, to idolatrous Israel, and the religious leaders of those days. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. It starts off. It says, Let me sing now for my beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. So Isaiah here is speaking of his well-beloved who is God, right? And God here in this passage has a vineyard. Verse 2. And he dug it all around, removed removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. So this sounds familiar, right? We see it parallels the beginning of the parable Jesus taught. Here it's saying that God planted a vineyard and he built everything for this vineyard to succeed, to be fruitful. Built the tower, built the vat, and so forth. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. And I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. 
For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So you see in this prophetic message from Isaiah, God is the owner of this vineyard. He plants this vineyard, and that is to be the house of Israel, God's people. And he expected them to produce fruit because he did everything it needed to be fruitful. Yet it only produced worthless grapes. I hate worthless grapes. You know what I mean? You ever gone to the grocery store? You get a bag of grapes. I don't know what your process is, but what I do is I, I feel the outward part. If it's a little firm, that's a good grape, right? I hate when you get a bunch of grapes. You get home, you wash it. It's time to eat it, and they're the most flavorless grapes. Ah, oh, it's disgusting. Or hey, when it gets too soft or pruney, right? When you get your fruit, you want it to taste good. Oh, I love good fruit, right? I love good grapes. And see, so God is pointing to Israel through Isaiah. He says, I have done everything for you to produce fruit for me. I have done all that you've needed, and yet you have been worthless grapes. In this passage, what was the fruitfulness? He says, I looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. They weren't producing any qualities, characteristics that's pleasing to him. No fruit was produced. So, the, the, so his critics, Jesus, when he starts this parable, they ought to know the connection. Right? Jesus paints the same scenario. And for them who knows the scriptures, it should turn on a light. This is familiar to us. Once again, God is the owner of the vineyard. He provides all that is needed for the vineyard to flourish. And the vineyard is still God's people. But those who are, who are charged to tend to it was unfaithful and was wicked. What's the reaction? And they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the multitude, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. They knew. They knew what Jesus was saying. They understood that through this parable, Jesus was referring to them. They were the ones, just like in times before when Jesus referred to the Old Testament, they're saying, you are like your forefathers before who persecuted God's prophets, his messengers. You're doing the same thing. Their silence implicated them. They couldn't answer Jesus' question. So their silence implicated them, and they knew it. It's interesting. We began this passage confronting, they confronted Jesus, questioning his authority. 
And how does it end? It ends with them leaving. Their authority was not only questioned, but silenced. I love that about Jesus. So you're looking, you're sitting there, you may be thinking, okay, Pastor Mike, um, Christmas is in a week. What does this message have to do with Christmas? This is not the joyful Christmas message I was, I was thinking, I was, I was expecting. We see this message has everything to do with Christmas. Because this is the purpose of why he came. This is the reason why we celebrate Christmas. Because see, now I can't look at the baby in the manger without thinking about the man on the cross. Right? I can't think about his birth, why he came, without thinking about where he was going. Right? He came. He was born, miraculously born, lived a sinless life that would lead him to the cross. Through his pain, we can have forgiveness. Think about that. Through his pain, we no longer have to carry the burden and the guilt and the shame in our life. And through his resurrection, we have new life. Through his resurrection, we can enjoy restored relationship with God. This is the reason why we can celebrate Christmas. This is the reason why, this is the reason for the season, the purpose for it. You see, behind the festive, joyful celebrations, the decorations, right, we can enjoy and have fun. We enjoy the Christmas parties and, and the gift exchanges and stealing each other's gifts and laughing at each other because you're, you, you got something stolen or whatever. All in good fun, of course. All godly experiences, right? We can enjoy the Christmas songs and all those kind of things. But in the midst of all the joyful celebration or even the stressful busyness of the shopping and all that kind of stuff, we can't forget why we celebrate. You may watch some shows. How many have already watched a Christmas movie or a show? Any of you? All right. You may watch a number of Christmas shows, a Christmas movies, maybe Christmas songs, and many of them will tell you the true meaning of Christmas, right? A lot of them try to show the true meaning of Christmas. The true meaning of Christmas is not the gift giving. It's family time. It's time for family. It's time for joy. It's not about the shopping and the business. It's about, uh, I don't know, peace on earth or whatever it may be, right? They may share some good things, but most likely they will neglect to emphasize the true meaning of Christmas. And that's God's love shown to us to eventually be the sacrifice for our sin. It's a painful price for us. That's the true meaning of Christmas. It's not even just the birth. It's still the cross. And I, wanted, I thought it was perfect timing for this passage. The next couple of weeks, we, will, we won't be in Mark, and we'll pick it back up in three weeks in Mark. 
But I thought it was perfect timing to get us ready for Christmas. Because Jesus is, is foreshadowing and telling the people, the Son will die. But He will live. He will live. That we may have new life. And I want us in this Christmas time, I'm not trying to burden us, like every time we see a manger, we have to think of the cross and and feel bad, right? I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, let's not let that message get lost. Just as we talked about forgiveness last week, meaning of Christmas brings us the message of forgiveness, restores us, God saves us. The Savior of the world came for you and me that we may believe in him. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, um, Lord, we thank you for the love and the grace and the mercy that you have shown us. We thank you that we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate more than a birth. We celebrate more than just a miracle. We even celebrate more than just family and time with friends. We certainly celebrate more than vacations and time away from school or work. Lord, we remember the price that you paid for us. Lord, we can celebrate Christmas, but Lord, let us remember also the price of your coming. We thank you, Lord God, of your great love for us. We thank you, Jesus, and we give you praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship the Lord.